Thanks, Natalie. Good morning again, church. Yep, we are starting a series in Philippians, the book of Philippians, if you want to turn there. Uh, two Tuesdays ago, every other Tuesday we have a, a, a prayer and worship time called uh, the Upper Room Sessions. And we'll, we were actually right over here, we formed a group of chairs and we were praying and what we decided to do was combine an ancient practice with a, a little bit more modern practice, I guess it's ancients too, or you could say a, a contemplative practice with a little bit more of a charismatic practice. So the contemplative practice is called Lexio Divina, where you uh, read scripture and you, you listen, you're listening for the Holy Spirit. You're not really doing inductive Bible study, but you're, you're kind of taking in, reading the same passage of scripture several times and listening to a word or a phrase that's emphasized to you. And then we linked that with listening prayer. And so we, as we shared, went around the circle and shared and then we allowed the Spirit just to lead us, and then uh, Elder Kurt had a beautiful word for my wife, Kendra. Just, it was a neat, neat time. So we go to, I decided to read the passage of Blind Bartimaeus, and I love that story. And you're not supposed to do this with Lexio Divina, but I kind of knew the word that would stick out to me, like beforehand, because he's calling out to Jesus, and he says, mercy. Mercy, son of David, and many of you know I love that word mercy, and I was just anticipating that the Spirit again would stir my spirit and hear mercy, but that's not the word that the Spirit laid on my heart. In fact, in the story, when Bartimaeus is crying out, Jesus stops and he says, bring him here, and so, <laughs> I don't know why I get choked up on this. The disciples go to him and they say this, cheer up, Jesus is calling you. Cheer up. And I was like, and I heard the Lord go, Eric, cheer up. I love you. I'm in relationship with you. Does anything else matter? So, in the Advent season, we celebrate some particular elements of the Lord, right? We, we light the candle of, of hope and peace and joy and love, and then the Christ candle. And when I enter the Advent season, I always kind of work through those elements of Advent and say, how am I doing, Lord? Am I, am I growing in those? What is that one that really I need to grow most in? And you know, there's one that seems more elusive than all the others, at least to me. Any sense of what that might be? That idea of joy in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of all these challenging times, how do I live with that element 
of joy that's growing. Now, I need to grow in the others for sure. And I would like to say that I have grown in joy, but it seems like consistently when I enter Advent, that, that peace of joy. We thought as a teaching team we would walk through the book of Philippians, mainly because of Philippians 2. Philippians 2 has this gorgeous Right? The, the incarnation of Christ Jesus, where, where, where Jesus, Paul, describes the mystery of him leaving the throne room of God and coming to earth, Emmanuel, so we'll do this Advent reading. So we're, we're excited to read through Philippians with this beautiful passage to the center. But do you know what the book of Philippians is known as? The book of joy. The epistle of joy. Over 16 times, Paul repeats this idea of joy and rejoice. And in fact, climactically at the end of the book, he'll say, and I'll say it again, rejoice. And so I thought, boy, this this book is going to be a little bit challenging. It's going to, I believe, it's going to invite us to that places of, of hope and peace and love, of course. But in particular, challenge us in this idea of joy. I would love it if next Advent, the preaching of Philippians was so good in this Advent, next Advent, I, need, I, I had another lower one. Do you want to join me in that? See if we can really grow in all of these elements of Christmas, but in particular, hear the perspective of joy that Paul is preaching. All right, let's turn to Philippians. We're gonna, I'm going to try and read the... First part, we're not going to read all of chapter 1, but we're going to start at verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, elders, or bishops, and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's believed that this was written about uh, 61 AD, Paul had planted the church in Philippi and now writing to them. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's got the special relationship with the Christians in Philippi. He thinks and prays of them in joy, in part because of their partnership, that's verse 5, in the gospel. Being confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you've got your own Bible, that verse 6 is a good one to highlight. And pray and claim. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We're going to discover 
throughout uh, this letter that Paul is in chains. He's in prison. Probably, we don't know exactly where, but probably under house arrest in Rome. So he is facing a trial which could end in his execution. Um, God can testify how long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That was verse 8, verse 9. And this is my prayer. Listen to how he prays. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and a depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's talking about the second coming. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Might want to circle or highlight that prayer. That would be a good prayer to pray through Advent. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. The fact that he's in prison. He's saying, you know, this isn't such a bad thing because it has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare uh, all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It stirred this boldness. It is true, Paul says, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. We're going to pause right there and pick it up next week in verse 20. Now, one of the things that jumps out to me right away is that this epistle of joy, this letter that is encouraging, that reflects the the joy of the Lord in Paul, this letter that, that Paul is inviting us to partake in the joy, it's written from prison. It's written from not so joyful, uh, especially if he, if he was not in house arrest, if he was in a normal prison, the, the Roman prisons could be pretty harsh and miserable, and yet he's writing this letter of joy from a place of potential compromise and misery 
and even suffering. And I would say to the attentive reader, to those paying attention, they would say right away, Paul is challenging something that we assume about joy. Something that just, it's, it's human nature that usually we derive our joy, our happiness, primarily from our circumstances. How you doing? Well, this is going on. I've got this pain and, the, and then over there and all of that. How we're doing is usually derived from circumstance. And Paul, right away, just from his circumstance and his invitation, we recognize Paul is not deriving this joy from circumstance. He couldn't be. There's got to be some other things happening within Paul that I would really like to get a hold of. There's another interesting observation I want us to make. And you can challenge me on this. You can disagree with me. You can send me an email because I'm going to challenge a, something held by Christians for a long time. I've heard it preached on the difference between joy and happiness. I, I don't see it. I don't see it in Paul and Philippians. I don't see it in the rest of Scripture. I mean, I get it. I know why we preach on that because it's like we have moments of sadness and we're supposed to be joy and so we can't be happy all the time, but maybe we could be deeper joy, but I don't see it in Scripture. In fact, I see throughout Scripture that maybe there is a happiness that's within joy. But I don't want to get comfortable in separating those things. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 13 is a good example. We have that in your bulletin where, where the Lord is talking similar to what we read in Isaiah 61 at the communion table. And he's restoring Israel. And he talks about this in his restoration. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. That, that's called poetic parallelism. He's using gladness and joy. He's essentially putting the words parallel to one another. He's saying the same thing, but they're, they're doing it in a different way. He said, I'm going to give you this, this gladness or this happiness. I'm going to give you this joy. He doesn't separate. No, no, no. You get joy, no happiness, but I'll give you joy. It, it just doesn't work in my mind. I want to play this out a little bit farther in in the book of Philippians. And I would argue that in this section, we see that Paul is deriving even happiness and joy from two different places. One, I would argue, from the purposes of God. And the other, I would argue, from the providence of God. Look at verse 12 with me. He's saying, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what is happening to me 
has actually served to do what? Advance the gospel. He's saying that there is some good work. My jailing that, and in his time, if this was, he was talking about the palace guard, the most, probably the most, from an earthly perspective, the most powerful place on the, uh, in all the world, the, the corridors of power, Caesar's palace, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is starting to infiltrate through the palace. He also goes on to talk about presumably Christians that they are being filled with a boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the palace guard. And he's saying, yeah, there's mixed motives here. Some are doing it because they love me and yet they see that I'm doing well in prison and so they're giving a boldness. Others are doing it, yeah, this selfish ambition, this envy. They think if they preach louder, it'll be more difficult for me in prison. Uh, Boy, I think Paul has every reason to grow in bitterness and anger towards those people that are trying to stir up more trouble for him while he's in jail. And what is his response? What does it matter? The gospel is being preached, even with bad motives. Even the gospel, it's getting out this message of Jesus Christ coming to the earth and dying on the cross and ascending to the right hand of the Father. This is spreading throughout the known world. Isn't that awesome? Paul, aren't you in jail? Yeah, but who cares? What does it matter? I think it's interesting just to hold that up, mixed motives against a false gospel. When when Paul sees a false gospel being preached, he doesn't say, what does it matter, does he? He addresses that false gospel. He calls us to address that false gospel. And yes, motives matter very much to Paul, but there he says, no, no. Look at the gospel spreading. Praise God. Look at verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul was finding joy. I want to suggest it in this way. He had a cause. He had something greater, something more meaningful and significant than his own personal happiness. He was not pursuing happiness. He was not pursuing his own selfish ambition. He was pursuing the purposes of God. And there was a joy that was stirring when he saw the purposes of God being lived out that were surpassing his own personal circumstance. Friends, I want to encourage us that if we want to grow in joy, that we would hitch our lives to a cause 
other than our own personal happiness. Think of that phrase, selfish ambition that he uses. James 3.16 says this, For where you find envy and selfish ambition, it's the next verse in, uh, in your outline. For where you find envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Also, Philippians 2.3, he says this, Rather, in humility, Paul's going to say, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of other. He's not speaking about ambition just generally. He's talking about this self-centered ambition, this ambition that happens at the expense of others, ambition that has no concept of others' good. I am convinced that a crucial aspect of growing in joy and happiness is that we're progressively caring about the purposes of God in others' lives. And our focus is diminishing. That we're we're increasingly looking and attending to His good and eternal purposes. Now, I want to say this about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I think those are brilliant documents. I think those documents have formed and shaped our nation to be a nation like no other. I celebrate those documents. However, they're not scripture, correct? So would you allow me just a slight criticism of these documents. Would that be okay? Did you notice I used that phrase, the pursuit of happiness? Now, do I think it's an inalienable right to seek life and liberty and the pursuit of justice or uh, happiness? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's believed that uh, Benjamin Franklin got that from a philosopher John Locke, right, that we should get that pursuit of happiness. Yes, I think there's inalienable rights. But I think that it's done something in our conscience as a nation that has focused us on something that I don't believe is true. That if we want to grow in our personal happiness, that we have to pursue directly our personal happiness. And I don't think it works that way. I think we're missing it. I I think that this is in part what Paul is talking about, that there is a a selfish ambition, a a self-centeredness as we're pursuing something that's all about us and not about others. You can disagree with me if you want. It's okay. But, but I think he's saying that, no, 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 you're missing it if you're on this self-centered pursuit. That's not how you experience joy. 
That's not how you experience happiness. If you want to experience happiness and joy, then pursue the things of God. Maybe you've heard this phrase or uh, you've used this phrase. I, I think I, perhaps I've used, boy, I just want my kids to be happy. When you talk about your kids, do you, do you say that? I, I, probably I have said that, yeah? And oftentimes in that background is, is this idea of just do what makes you happy. That's not right. That's not how it works. I, I think that's a message from our culture that the scriptures here are, are saying no. There's a difference. If you want to experience joy, find a cause that is good and right and eternal. Stop focusing on your personal and selfish ambitions, whether that's happiness or joy, whatever that is, but focus on the things of God. At least that's what Paul was doing. Listen to the scripture from Hebrews. I think Jesus, again, is our model in this. Where did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, I just want you to be happy? Did he say that? Here's what, if you do these three things, pursue happiness, you're good. I think you're agreeing with me. I was unsure if you're going to agree with me. Listen to this. Fixing our eyes, Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What? He found joy in the cross? That, that makes no, does that make any sense? Any sense? How in the world could we make sense out of connecting joy and the cross? The only thing is that God the Father was saying, here's my purpose that I've called you to, my son. And as Jesus entered into that place of great suffering, he experienced the joy of the Lord. I was thinking whether we're, we're called to be teachers or engineers administrators, called to the military, whatever that is. He's saying, are you, are you seeking after the purposes of God in your life? Whatever your lot as a family, single or widowed, married, whatever that is, are you seeking the greater purposes of God in your personal life and in your professional life? That's the place. That's the source of joy of the Lord. Don't we lament? Don't, aren't we filled with fear and sadness and struggle, oftentimes because of our professional lives or our family lives? Yes. 
And yet he says, if you're pursuing God's purposes, there's the place of joy. To live God's purposes. I was uh, just doing an internet search on comments made about joy and happiness. And I came across this, these comments made by one of my favorite actors, Anthony Hopkins. Just this brilliant actor. And yet I, found, I was profoundly disappointed by his words regarding happiness. It was an interview, I think, in GQ magazine. But he said this. He said, and that's my philosophy. Ask nothing, expect nothing, and accept everything. That's it. That, to me, is happiness. To acknowledge that I know nothing, I'm insignificant, it's all meaningless to me. And it's a bit of fun to have a little bit of acclaim and be successful or achieving things. It's fine. Enjoy it while it lasts. We know nothing. And that comes back to me. I know nothing. I don't know anything. I'm going to love him as an actor, but I'm not turning to him for wisdom in my life, right? No! That, I mean, I guess you could go to a place of meaninglessness, but I, I think Paul is going the exact opposite direction. Don't you know there is this eternal purpose in life? Don't you know that God has a plan and incredibly he invites us to participate in these good work, whether professionally or in our family, in our personal lives, in our world, that he invites us. And as you connect your life to God's purposes, eternal meaning, there is that source of joy. Amen? Paul is advocating, in fact, I would say the exact opposite of what Anthony Hopkins is. He's advocating purpose and a cause. We use the language here, time, talent, and treasure. That, that God invites us to give of our time, to give of our talent, to give our treasure, to connect our time, talent, and treasure to his purposes and his work in this world. And that leads I would argue, to a deeper joy and a deeper happiness. Natalie shared a little bit ago that we, when Pastor Gabby came here from Lebanon, as a community of faith, we, we blessed him financially. There was one couple in particular that gave a really large amount to Gabby. And in fact, they just kind of handed it to me casually in a as at the end of the service, and I got up to my office, and I looked, and I was like, whoa. So the next day, I called that couple, and I got to hear their process of making that decision. It was over the phone, but I'm pretty sure she was crying, tears of joy, that she could be released, that couple released from any concerns of finances and give it to Gabby. 
in that giving, there was a joy. In fact, it was a triple joy. Because I was filled with joy. This was an answer to prayer that I've been praying for Pastor Gabby. And, and now because of the currency in Lebanon, it, it's multiplied. And then I got to tell Gabby and see his joy. He, he had a calm joy because he, he's... I'm going to bring this up later in Philippians because Paul also says that he's learned the secret of contentment. And Gabby way farther along than I am in that idea. Because I was like, Gary, look at this. He's like, oh, praise God. <laughs> but you see that, that, that joy that wasn't this self-centered pursuit of a, 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 of a personal thing. This was a connecting to a greater purposes of God. I'm convinced, church, that if you want to grow, enjoy this season, more and more in ever-increasing measure, attach your life, your career, your family, your time, talent, and treasure to the purposes of God. There's joy in giving. Second, I would say the other aspect that Paul really represents is this idea of God's providence. There's a, a joy in trusting in God's providence. Look at verse 19, the last verse that we read. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. First point is, I think it's beautiful and it emphasizes a Trinitarian view of Scripture. He's referring to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Yes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he uses this word deliverance. And, and yes, some could say he was confident that he would be delivered, which he was, um, if it indeed was house arrest in Rome, that, that Paul, um, he was courageous in his witness, according to church history, and he was released from prison. But others would say, I hear more of a eternal deliverance. That Paul was saying, I don't know the specific details. But in the end, I'm delivered in Christ Jesus. That you're going to see later in the letter, he's actually looking forward to being with Jesus in eternity. And, and joy for Paul seems to be flowing from this trusting relationship in God, this, this trusting time. It made me think of uh, when we talked about the three invitations of Christ, and Paul is speaking, or uh, Jesus is speaking specifically about worry and anxiety. Remember? And he says, 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He says, your father knows what you need. Your father knows you. He loves you. He knows your circumstances. Can you trust that? Can you live life differently? Not from a place of worry. Not from a place of anxiety. Not from a place that that saps where you're looking at the circumstances of life. What if that happens? What if that? What if that? A third variant of the virus. I just want to check out. What if we don't allow those circumstances to overwhelm and rob us, steal us of the joy, but instead we say, you know what, I don't know how it's going to work out. I I don't know what this looks like, but I know God's got me. I know he's on the throne. I know that he's good. I know that he will care for me. I don't know how this is going to work out with my child that I'm praying for. And I just, oh no, God, help. This prognosis that God, what, no, what, the, the virus, no, God, help. And what if we just said, you know what, my heavenly father knows what I need. I am going to trust him. The outcomes the circumstances. I'm going to entrust him. You know, one of the, just a story from a number of years ago, many of you know that it was a long and hard and difficult battle for custody of my children. And my, my story has some really huge struggles in it. And one of the lessons that I learned, and I've shared this lesson before is, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know where my kids are going to end up. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to just do the right thing every day. That's my job. I'm not going to worry and be anxious about that. I'm just going to do the right thing today. It was a lesson on integrity and righteousness for me today. See, I think we compromise our actions and our words because we're fearful of the outcomes, right? And yet, if we entrust the outcomes to God, then we say, okay, what is my job? Is to do the right thing today. I, I think there was a second lesson in that that I might have missed. It was a lesson on integrity, but also a lesson of my life and my joy not being derived from the outcome, but derived from my relationship with God. Does that make sense? That, that the, I, I think I still lamented and struggled to a great degree because of the what if of my circumstance. And I believe Paul, 
He could be executed at the end of this imprisonment. And he's like, no, rejoice. Because he wasn't waiting for the outcome. He's like, God has got me, however that works out. And my level of joy is not going to be connected to the outcome of this circumstance. Friends, I believe that is a lesson for us, is our role is trust. Our role is faith. Our role is to lean into Jesus in every circumstance whether hard or easy, and derive our life, derive our our joy, our hope, our peace, and our love from our relationship with God, that that would affect our circumstance rather than our circumstance affect us. Amen? Amen? And I love how Paul puts that role again, verse 19, through your prayers, he's speaking to the Philippians, but we're going to apply this to ourselves, in God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Right there, he's talking about our role, not only integrity, not only faith, but also prayer and cooperation with what the Spirit of God is doing. If you want to grow in joy, again, link your life, your prayers, in cooperating with the Spirit of Christ. We have a ministry here. Our prayer ministry is called the House of Prayer. Veda, who shared a word earlier, she leads the House of Prayer. And that's based on a, a scripture. Paul, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, where we get the title House of Prayer. And I never noticed this before. In this Isaiah 56, 7, we have it for you in the bulletin. It says, there I will bring, he's speaking to the Gentile people who would fear the Lord. And he says, he's inviting these Gentile people who get it, who fear the Lord. And he says, these, these Gentile folks, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them, what's that word there? I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What a beautiful, powerful picture of a people of joy, a people 
who are learning it's not all about me, learning it's actually not about my pursuit of happiness, learning that joy is not found in circumstance, learning that joy is connecting our lives to the things and the purposes of God, learning that there's a source of joy that is made available to you and to me, that, that the world has no concept of this world that's longing for happiness, longing for joy, longing for that good life. And Paul right here is saying, friends, don't you get it? Joy is not found in the circumstance. Joy is not found in the pursuit of it. Joy is found in the purposes and the providence of God. Push into those and my joy will well up within you. As a huge testimony, when, when Veda was sharing that picture of that light, that person, I was thinking, boy, if that light was a light of joy and happiness, people would go, I want me some of that. What, what is going on with those people? Don't they know we're in the midst of a pandemic? Don't they know all the ills of the world? Yeah. But we're trusting our lives into the hands of God. We're actually joining Him in His purposes. And it's a delight. Would you pray with me? Lord, I think of uh, Paul's words in another place where he says, as I imitate Christ, so imitate me. Lord, we're mindful of this Advent season that it is a season often marked with uh, great sadness and anxiety. For many of us, we've, we've lost dear ones, that, that those folks are not around the, the Thanksgiving table or the Christmas table, and we miss them, Lord. We, we feel it. Lord, I don't know how it works, but in the midst of that anxiety, you meet us and you invite us to this place of joy, celebration, even happiness, Lord God, even a gladness. So Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Fill us with the fruit of joy that comes from your presence. 